Unstoppable God. I love that song, and it was so appropriate that we closed with it this morning because we're studying in the book of Acts. We're looking this week, if you're following along and you read through the New Testament in a year, we're in Acts chapter 17 through 21, and we're actually going to be in Paul's second missionary journey. And it's just, you see the cycle that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, repeated over and over and over and over and over. The Word of God goes forth. People believe and get saved. There's signs and wonders and miracles and healings and all kinds of amazing things. And of course, what happens? Persecution. That religious spirit, the spirit of jealousy, rises up to try to stop it. And then God intervenes. The unstoppable God. Man cannot stop what God intends to do. Get, got the enemy, the devil, cannot stop what God intends to do. God's will and his purposes are going to unfold his way in his time and for his glory. This week, uh, the subtitle of the message is The Unknown God. The Unknown God. In a lot of your Bibles, in chapter 17, the heading might be something about uh, the, the Sermon at Mars or the Mars message. We're going to look at Paul and try to give us a little bit of an of a update. Go ahead and put the map up. We're not going to be showing this often, but I, I think it, it helps me anyway when I'm reading the Bible to get a, some sort of picture in my head of the geography. When you look over there in the area of Tarsus and Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Antioch of Pisidian, and you see over here on the right-hand side, Antioch of Syria, that's the Antioch church that was the sending church. That is an amazing model of what a New Testament church could be like and should be like, what was taking place there. When you read about the Antioch church, you see the, the ministry gifts. You see the prophetic being very involved in that church. You see the apostolic, Paul, being very involved in that church and other apostles. You see the teachers. It mentions teachers are there, pastors are there, and they're sending out missionaries, evangelists. The five-fold ministry of the New Testament church isn't some new trend in the last 30, 40, 50 years in the world. It's something that's been around since the very beginning. And it, in, it, it built up the church. It empowered the church. They used it to, to, to spread the kingdom of God, God's unstoppable force, his word going forth, changing lives. If you remember, we talked about Paul had a real burden to go into Asia. He wanted to stay into Asia. And we saw in the last week's message that the Holy Spirit stopped him. Some of the translations use the word forbid. Whatever the word is in the, in the original language, the Greek and Aramaic, it's a very strong word. The Holy Spirit said, no, the doors closed to Asia. Well, to Paul, it's like, okay. So he's in Troas over here, just in the middle by the Aegean Sea, and he had that vision. And it's the vision, you might be hearing the term, when other people tell you they felt called by the Lord to go somewhere to do something. You may have heard referenced, I received my Macedonian call. What does that mean? It means Paul at Troas had a vision. And the vision was a man over in Macedonia. And you see the left, very left word there, Macedonia. That region of the world, that region was taking Paul into Europe. God had closed the door for him in Asia for the time being. He had traveled through the churches he'd been planting in, in Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And, and he's in Troas and he has a vision. And it's the vision of a man. And the man is saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. As we've said before, God can use any of us 
and he wants to use all of us. And I don't even like the word use. It's kind of like he's taking advantage of us. But God has a purpose and plan for every one of us in our destinies, in his ultimate destiny. He had a call, and he said, come and help us. So what did Paul do? He was available. That's what we need to be, available. God doesn't ask us to be this most brilliant theologian. He doesn't ask us to have the most great intelligence or the perfect personality. He just says, are you available? Are you available? And will you be obedient to the call? That's it. He doesn't care what your past looked like for crying out loud. Paul was killing people for Christ. He was killing Christians. He thought he was doing the work of God because in his religion, in his religion mindset, he was killing, persecuting Christians. God got his attention. Paul repented, accepted Christ, and he made himself available. Make yourself available. And when you hear the Lord lead, whether it's through the word or through something in your spirit as you're praying, maybe someone speaks a word to you and you pray and meditate on it. When the Lord speaks to you and you know it's the Lord, will you be obedient? And that's what Paul was. And Paul and Silas, he went over. He went up to Philippi, and the cycle continued. Preached the word, people got saved, persecution, let's go. They took him down through and until he received to, uh, arrived down at Thessalonica, the Thessalonian church, First and Second Thessalonians in your Bible. That church was planted in Europe by Paul and Silas. Amazing things happened in uh, Thessalonica, the, <clears throat> including this uh, persecution that was so intense that when he moved on, they followed him. You know, he'd, he'd left Philippi, the Philippians, he left Philippi after the amazing, miraculous intervention of God when Paul and Silas were put in prison. Hopefully you remember the story, and if you're reading along in Acts, you'll know the story, but they're in prison, and they're praising God. They've been beaten, and they're locked in shackles, and they're praising God and praying and worshiping, and, and an earthquake comes, and Make a long story short, the prisoner and his whole, the, the prison guard or the prison manager and his whole family get saved. And then they leave the city. They get down to Thessalonica. And when they get to Thessalonica in chapter, Acts 17, verse 3, and I'm just going to be reading a few scriptures as we go through here. In Acts 17, verse 3, explaining and giving evidence. This was what Paul's message was. It's not a complicated message. Paul was brilliant. He was one of the most educated Jews of the day. But his message wasn't that complicated. In, in verse 17, chapter 17, verse 3, it says, He was explaining and given evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And you'll notice one of the things that Paul almost always talked about was the resurrection. Over and over. Jesus, the resurrection, the need to repent, his sacrificial death on our behalf. But the resurrection was almost always part of his message. And of course, as the word went out, empowered by the Holy Spirit, people responded and believed. And then the Jewish people got jealous, the few Jews that there were over in that part of the world. And in, in Acts 17, verse 6, it tells us, this, to pick up the story there, that they're looking for Paul and Silas and Timothy who were traveling together, and they couldn't find them. They'd already got them out. So they went to one of the houses where they knew they'd been staying, and it says this, When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason, it was his home, and some brothers before the city authorities shouting. And I picked out this verse because I just love the rest of the verse. These men, 
These men, and depending on your translations, these men who have made a mess of everything, they've turned the world upside down, they're causing trouble everywhere they go, these men have came here too. And what I love about that phrase is these men, these few men, these men that were available and obedient to the Lord, obedient to the Holy Spirit, they were changing the environment of continents. They were changing everything. They were turning the world upside down as it had been known, especially the Jewish world. Think about that. The Jewish people, God's chosen people, who had been practicing Judaism for centuries, and they'd missed the Messiah. And these guys were coming with the message of Jesus. The law had been fulfilled in this man. There's salvation in no other. Jesus. He is the Messiah. Talk about your world getting turned upside down. A few people on fire for God, being led by the Holy Spirit, being obedient to the Holy Spirit, can turn our little worlds upside down. We can make a difference in our communities. We can make a difference in the surrounding area. We can make a difference in the world. You know, it's been prophesied many years over our little church here in a little tiny Ballotin that there was going to be both numerical and spiritual growth, and we were going to be sending people to the nations. I remember when we first started hearing that, we were thinking, yeah, okay. Should we stone that prophet or not? And look what's happened over the years. People that we've sent out from here to the nations, the ministries around the world that we support, impacting the nations. You know, I know we don't think about that often enough, but your generosity as a church is impacting the nations, the nations from Ballotin and southwest Minnesota and all the communities we represent here are impacting the world. And how much greater can that impact be as we continue to make ourselves available and obedient to Christ? Then Paul and Silas and Timothy took off. Forget, don't worry about the map. But they had left, <coughs> they left and they were headed to Athens. And that's where we're going to kind of pick up today's primary message. They went to Athens. Paul went first. He went ahead of them. And when I say them, it's primarily uh, Timothy and Silas, his traveling partners. And when you read the story in Acts chapter 17, it's almost as if Paul went ahead of them because they had to get him out of Dodge because he was going to be beaten or killed or worse. They got him out, and he arrived in Athens. Now, Athens was past its prime a little bit, but it was still a historical center, It was a cultural center, it was a religious center, and it was a pagan center, and intellectualism was like almost God. And this is where Paul went. And it appears when you read it, and I'm making a little of an assumption here, so don't make doctrine out of it, but it looks like Paul's intentions when he got to Athens was, okay, kind of like you and I might pull into a a new city. Let's, Let's just walk around town. A little bit. Let's let's drive around the city. Let's let's get a feel for where we're at. And he's in Athens, and as far as we can tell, it was his first time ever being in Athens. And this place of unbelievable architecture. There was unbelievable sculptures everywhere. This was a center, as I said, of culture, intellectualism, uh, religion, and it looks like he wasn't even intending to do much preaching and teaching. He was going to wait for Silas and Timothy. Except, when he started walking around the city, it says his spirit was troubled. 
And I'm going to read in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 18 here first. And we're going to work through the Mars Hill message. It says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them, meaning Timothy and Silas, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Everywhere he went, there were idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue. He couldn't keep quiet any longer. He went to the synagogue as he normally did with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And then he went out into the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be present. Anywhere there was an audience, he was ready to share the good news. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this babbler wish to say to us? How many of you know that wasn't a compliment? He seems to be a proclaimer of some strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And that word deities there in the original language has a number of possible meanings. One of them is simply demons. Or one of them means less than God but greater than man. They didn't know what he was preaching. It was strange. When they talk about babbling, the word babbling actually means one who picks up scraps for a living. A babbler. It's interesting as he's walking through the Holy Spirit in him. And this, this is something that we need to be aware of in our own lives. It's like he's walking through and he, in his spirit, is provoked. Something in him stirs and says, this is, this is evil. This is dark. This is not God-honoring. And he can't restrain himself. The Holy Spirit is prompting him and leading, and he starts sharing the gospel. Jesus and him, him crucified and resurrected anywhere he could go, anybody who would listen. And all this beautiful architecture, all these beautiful sculptures didn't do a bit to soothe him because none of it honored God. And again, we live in a culture that's becoming more and more like that. Any semblance of God in our culture, in our architecture, they're wanting to remove God from it. Not honoring God. Does it provoke us? Does the Holy Spirit in us provoke our spirit? Do we respond? He starts speaking, as I said, to anybody that would. And he had a really challenging audience. You know, sometimes when we feel like we're prompted to share Christ, we get a little bit nervous, we get a little bit scared. We, we start analyzing the audience, even if it's an audience of one. You know, are they going to listen? How are they going to respond? Are they smarter than me? Do they know more than me? Oh, boy, I don't know. Now nah, I think somebody else better do it. He had a challenging audience. They were cultured. They were highly educated. And they were very religious. Boy, there's three to draw to. It's a challenge. Have you noticed the more cultured, the more highly educated, and the more religious people are, they're a little bit harder to reach with the truth of the gospel? This is the congregation he was speaking to wherever he went. But he continued to take the message. And there was two groups in there that are particularly mentioned in our uh, text, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, without spending a lot of time on it, I think it's worth noting because we are running into all kinds of philosophies today. These were philosophers, philosophies. You know what philosophies really truly are more than anything else? Opinions of men. Opinions of men. And if they please enough people, they give up, develop followers. And before long, it really becomes a religion, whether they call it that or not. 
the Epicureans were an interesting group. They were, they were formed, they were followers of a, a philosopher named Epicurus. And the whole purpose of their philosophy was to attain a happy, tranquil life. And it was, it, there's a couple of terms here. Ataraxia was one of the terms, and all that meant peace and freedom from fear. Doesn't that sound great? Follow my philosophy, you'll have peace, freedom from fear. Sounds a little familiar. And the word aponia, the absence of pain. All right, peace, no fear, no pain, sounds good. How do you get this? Well, first, you live a self-sufficient life. You don't rely on other people. Pleasure and pain are measures of what is good and evil. Now, think about that. Pleasure and pain, good and evil. In other words, if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, it's evil. Quite a standard to judge things by. Death is the end of both your body and soul, and therefore, you don't need to worry about death because there's nothing after it. It just ends. Life's just over. We all get thrown in the grave. Whatever will be, will be. Sounds like so much of the philosophy of the day that we're living in. The gods, they believed in gods. They were religious people. But the gods, they don't reward anybody and they don't punish anybody. Makes you wonder why they would want to honor them and follow them, doesn't it? And they had altars everywhere. But this was the Epicurean philosophy. The universe was infinite and eternal. They had that much right. But all the events in it happened because of the random movement of atoms. There is no God. It just all happens. That was the Epicurean philosophers. And then there was the Stoics that are mentioned. And basically, they were pantheists. We have pantheists today. Pantheism basically says that everything is God and God is in everything. He's everywhere in all things. That complicates life a little bit. If he's in everything, what do we do? We cut down a tree. We just cut down God. It gets goofy. But it's out there. They were very moral. They had a high sense of duty because they honored everything as if it was all God. The Stoics believed that everything was God. All things, whether they were good or evil, therefore, were from God. So you didn't have to worry about any of it. If it was good, it was from God. If it was evil from God, that's okay. Go for it if you like it. If it appeals to you, it doesn't matter. You can see again the philosophers, and this is what Paul was challenging. And believe it or not, if you're not aware, this stuff is out there today. These philosophies have followers today. Pantheonism is popular yet today. And they accused Paul of idle babble. Strange doctrine, strange deities. Jesus is the resurrection. Verse 19 through 21. And they took him and brought him to what's called Mars Hill. And I think they call it that in our translations, but as we kids, we can't pronounce the Eras Pagas, this hill in the city. Did I have a picture of this hill in somewhere in the slides? Do I have a picture of it? I can't remember. I deprived you of that. The ruins of it are still there today. It was a big granite mountain or hill right outside the city of Athens. And they built a great big place. Matter of fact, they're restoring a lot of it. It's a great big arena with seating. And this is where they would go. And what would they go there to do? 
Try to impress one another. Read what it says. They wanted to take him to Mars Hill. May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They were open to hearing. They wanted to hear, but it was a curiosity. The message was a curiosity to them. And they wanted to have him come and speak. They had never heard a teaching like this before. Their interest was totally worldly, the way it appears. Their intellectualism, their philosophies. Well, maybe this new philosophy is something we're going to know that no one else has heard and that we can tell everybody else about it. It's kind of like professional gossipers. All they would do is sit around and talk about things, opinions, sharing their opinions. It wasn't a sincerity for the truth. They were just curious. It was intellectual curiosity. Do you run into that today? There are all kinds of people out there who have intellectual curiosity about the things of God. Even the Word of God. They'll read the Bible, but they read the Bible as if it's information and information only. Not that it's a life-giving, life-empowering, life-changing Word of God. There's not a sincerity to it. We can be fooled by people who know the Word or know some of the Word. That doesn't mean they know the truth. That doesn't mean they've received it. We can get in long discussions and debates, but we're just sharing opinions. They're just curious. Paul's sermon on the mountain in Acts 17, verse 22, it says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, if you're reading through the book, you'll see that this is a break from his normal way of starting his teachings. Normally, what Paul did was he would go into town, he would go into the synagogue generally, and he would start with an exposition of Scripture. If you remember, over and over, we see that he came and he gave almost a history lesson from the Bible. And he would expose the Scripture and eventually leading and saying, see how it points to Jesus? But here he had a different crowd. Here he had these intellectuals. He had these curiosity seekers. And he starts out his message in a totally different way, but in a way to connect with the people. Paul's quote was, I will all, I'm all things to all people that some might get saved. And I think as we look at his message here, one of the things I think we need to look at is technique. You know, we need to be open to methodologies. I mean, my goodness, if you told me 30 years ago we'd have done church like we've just been doing church, I'd have thought you were crazy. And I would have certainly said, I won't be part of that. The methods change. Cultures change. The message never changes. We can't get hung up on the methodology. We need to realize we have a culture. When we go into a mission field somewhere, one of the first things we do is try to get a little bit of understanding of the culture that we're going into to try to reach so that we don't go in there and to offend them, but also we can connect with them at some level. Then we can share the message. The message doesn't change. We live in a culture today that's way different than the culture I grew up in. Oh, my goodness. That means I'm old. And some of you are too. But the message doesn't change. 
Paul's message doesn't change, but his method here is interesting. So the first thing he does is, hey, I, I see, I've been walking around your city, and I see that you've got altars everywhere. You are a very religious people. How many of you know that's not necessarily a compliment? Even yet today, religion can draw people away from God probably more easily than it draws people to God. Depends on what we consider religion. There are very religious people. And Paul's what he's doing, he's trying to connect with the people he's going to be speaking to. In verse 23, it says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, how much sense does that make? I think I'm going to go worship and offer a sacrifice to the unknown God. Why would they do that? Well, there is a history to it that I'm not going to go into because we're not certain of it. But they were such a religious people that they just didn't want to miss one. They just didn't want to miss one. You know, if we miss a particular God, we might be punished. Bad things might happen. Famine might come. Whatever. So they, we got an unknown God. And Paul is just acknowledging, hey, I've been through your city. I see you're a very religious people. I see that you even have an altar to an unknown God. And then he sets the hook. And when we're sharing the gospel with anybody, it's great to be able to set a hook. And he sets the hook. He says, I see you have an altar to an unknown God. Really, what that altar is proclaiming is, we're kind of ignorant about this God thing. We believe there's gods. We don't know them at a personal level. But we want to cover all our bases. So we put up an unknown God thing for all the gods that we're ignorant about. He doesn't call them ignorant. That's not how you set the hook. But he sets the hook. He, he says to them, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I will proclaim to you. He set the hook. They want to know. There's a curiosity. Probably they've been offering things to this unknowing God themselves as a religious people. And all of a sudden Paul says, here I am. I have came to tell you and proclaim all that you need to know about the unknowing God. So he had a captive audience. He met them where they were at. They didn't want to miss worshiping a God, and now if they could know something about him, they'd know better how to worship him. Verse 24 starts with, The God who made the world. Now, when you just read this, it's a great little message, but if you can keep in mind what we've been talking about, the audience that he's dealing with, who he's talking to, where their mindset would be, because this is the things we need to do with the people we're sharing our message with, the gospel. We need to realize who our audience is. We need to realize maybe what some of the roadblocks are to their their faith and their openness to the truth. So notice how he speaks. The God who made the world and all things in it. The God who made the world and all things in it. Boy, the pantheists would wonder what the heck that's all about, wouldn't they? He is immediately separating creation from the creator. Trying to realign their thoughts and their opinions about God. How many people do we talk to that have an opinion about God? 
They have thoughts about God. They have an idea what He's supposed to be like. If there's a God, He'd never do that. A loving God couldn't possibly make us do that. This would never happen. Blah, 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 blah. Opinions. We need to have way more than an opinion about God. We need to know the truth. And Paul is laying it out for him now. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And then he does something else. He quotes a couple of Greek poets. He's connecting with the people. When he spoke to a Jewish audience about Jesus, he quoted Old Testament Scripture. When he's talking to this Greek audience, he quotes a couple of Greek poets because they happen to accidentally speak biblical truth. And here's what he said. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or image formed by the art and thought of man. Paul understanding his audience starts to separate creator and creation right away, changing their thoughts, changing their ideas. He realized he had to address what they currently believed and try to readjust their belief system according to truth. We need to understand that most of the people we talk with in the United States have an opinion about God. Amen? They think they know something about God. And they they do. They might. They probably have something mixed with their opinions. But we need to realize their opinions are strong, just like yours and mine are, just like yours and ours were before we got saved. And we need to be able to address them with logic, truth from the Word. Let the Word battle for you. Let the Holy Spirit battle for you. Just share the truth. And quite frankly, Paul's message is not a seeker-friendly one. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with seeker-friendly. But sometimes the truth needs to be spoken, whether it's seeker-friendly or not. The reality is truth is always seeker-friendly. But it needs to always be delivered in love. Paul declares in verse 27 that we should seek God, though he is not far from us. They were worshiping all these idols. They were offering sacrifices to all these gods. And they were big into the astronomy, Zeus and Mars and all these different things. And they were worshiping all these gods that were afar off. And if they got involved in their lives, it was usually to do one thing, bring judgment of some sort. And they worshiped them. So Paul is dealing with them at this level. And when he quotes these poets, two things it does. It builds a gap. It builds a bridge, the gap between him and his audience. But most importantly, biblical truth. When we get into sharing our faith, sharing the gospel, it can easily turn into a debate that we want to win. 
and our opinions start to come flooding in. Let the Word of God that dwells in you come forth. You know, God says that He'll give us the words to speak, and it's really helpful if we have the words in us. We need to know the Word. Get it in us. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, Paul is now starting to get down to crunch time. He's connecting with his audience. He's trying to shift their thinking, open their minds. And he says, God's overlooked these times of ignorance, but now God is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Repentance, a message that's disappearing in our culture today. Why? Because he has fixed the day to which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He is finally starting to talk about Jesus, the Messiah, the judge. He is going to judge. And he's given proof. Verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some begin to sneer, Others said, well, we, should hear, we shall hear this again concerning this. And Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined and believed. Notice how Paul progressed through his message. First, the knowledge that there was a creator. Everything was created by him. The life that we're living is given to us by him. Separating creator from creation. We're his offspring. And you, you know that's kind of a one-string banjo, but when we sing those songs about we are a child of God, we are his children. We have the benefits of being a child of God. We have the responsibilities out of love of being a child of God. Paul's making that known that we're an offspring. He's our heavenly father. He's not a far-off God. He's near to you. Matter of fact, he's near to you because he wants relationship with you. He desires relationship with you. And he tells us then that it's our responsibility. Ignorance is no excuse anymore. How much more true in our culture today with the Word of God, the Bible, the radios, the TVs, the apps, all the things that we can have to share the gospel, the truth. We really are without excuse. And finally, he warns them that you're going to be held accountable someday by the righteous judge, Jesus And we're all going to be held accountable someday by the righteous judge, Jesus. And it's almost as if he gets interrupted here, and we see he does. They sneer, some sneer, some say we'll get together again. Because I don't think he would have ever stopped with Jesus just as the righteous judge. He would have continued to proclaim way more about Jesus because he is so much more than a judge. When he gets to Jesus, he declares our time of ignorance is over, that we need to repent, that there will be judgment through Jesus. And this this judgment through Christ, this righteous judge, really is a key to maybe unlocking minds because none of us are righteous in our own ability or strength. We would all be judged unrighteous and we would all be condemned if it were not for the righteousness of Christ that's accounted to us as believers and children of God. When we stand before the righteous judge, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ. 
there are so many people striving to do better, to be good, to earn somehow enough, enough uh, credit to be accepted. There's not enough credit to be earned in the world. But it's given freely when we become a Christian. The righteousness of Christ, the cloak of Christ's righteousness is put upon us. We don't have to worry about that judgment thing at all. We are already declared righteous in Christ. And Paul is telling them there's going to be a righteous judge, and the message is Jesus will give you his righteousness when you accept him. And then he, he, he kind of closes the argument before he shut off with, and there's been proof. There's been proof. What was the proof? He was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. There was evidence. The proof was given. We're without excuse. And we're usually going to run into the same kinds of reactions that Paul did in, at the end of his discussion at Mars Hill. Go ahead to the next slide. Some began to sneer, mock, scoff. We're going to share with people, if we're obedient and listen to the Holy Spirit, and that's going to be their response. Sneer, scoff, mock. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to make fun of what you've told them. They're going to, they're going to blaspheme Jesus. They're going to do those things. There's going to be those that are. And you've got to have a salesman's attitude. You're just the messenger. Their rejection isn't of you. It's of Christ. And they're going to do that. But that can't stop us. When we walk in love and sharing truth, even walking in love and even with the truth, some people are going to respond that way. And then you're going to see people respond the second way. We're going to see some people, are they may not say these words, we want to hear again of this next week. But they may are basically are going to give you the idea that, you know, that's interesting. You've given me something to think about. I have more questions. And if we can perceive that and be led by the Holy Spirit, that gives us an opportunity to maybe line up a coffee date. You know, I'd love to get together with you for coffee. Maybe we can talk about this some more. You know, why don't you take some time and think about this? You know, last night we had a young gal, 13 years old, accept Christ. It's awesome. But when she came forward, she wanted to accept Christ, but she didn't want to accept Christ. And she had her reasons. And she was so honest. God, it was, it was amazing. I want to accept the Lord, but I don't want to accept the Lord. What are you afraid of if you accept the Lord? I'm afraid of the way I'm going to have to change my life. I'm afraid I won't love him the way he wants to be loved. I'm afraid I'll mess up, basically. Well, you know what she needed? A little more information. A little more information, that's all. You know what? You want to, you want to accept the Lord. Don't worry about the rest of that stuff. He will give you the grace. He's not going to be a God waiting there to pull the rug out from under you and say, yeah, you blew it. Yeah, you blew it. You're right. You're not good enough. And, and I encouraged her. I said, you know, you need to want this. We're not, we're not going to talk you into anything. We're not going to try to talk you into anything. And she listened and she thought for a little while, and then all of a sudden she leaned in close to me and says, I want to accept Christ now. God was great. There are sometimes people that just need a little more information. They need to hear about this. They need to process it. And that's great. They're just on their way to being a Christian. They just haven't quite got there yet. But we can't let that discourage us. And every now and then we are blessed 
like Paul. Some joined him and believed. Sometimes we're going to get... If you, I would ask this question, but I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I hope if I ask the question, have you ever had the privilege of leading somebody to Christ? Allowing the Holy Spirit to, to move through you to lead somebody to Christ? Cal, it's, it's almost better than your own salvation in some ways. You want to have more people accept Christ through you? By the Holy Spirit, there's a surefire way to make it happen. How many of you know what that is? Share with more people. It's that simple. The greatest testimonies are the people that have shared with the most people. If you listed all the times they were rejected and all the times they accepted Christ, guess which list would probably be way longer? How many people didn't accept Christ? But those people over here. And we have no idea what those people over here that we had the privilege of being a part of their salvation have went on and done with other people. The impact that Paul had. Just think of this. We are standing, sitting here today over just about 2,000 years later, not quite, talking about Paul. Our lives, my life, has been impacted by Paul. When we read his letters, We look at his life and we say, gee, this happened to him, this happened to him, this happened to him. Man, he was arrested and he spent his final days in a prison, as a prisoner in Rome. That glorified God. Guess what he did in that prison in Rome? He wrote Corinthians. He wrote the Philippians. He wrote the Ephesians. All these letters that we get ministered to, he wrote from a prison cell. God will bring glory and honor to himself no matter what. If you are available and obedient. That's our goal. To advance the kingdom. See God advance his kingdom. And as we go through the book of Acts, and I, I really just want to encourage you to be reading through it and spending some time. Now, don't even read ahead. Just do those five chapters a week and just meditate on them. Because what we're reading about is the church as we want to be. Methods will be different. The message is the same. The techniques have application. And we want to be, you know, we joke about this. I joke about this, you know, that we're the cult in the community. Not so much anymore, but, boy, we sure were. I like to think we were the church that started to turn the world upside down in Ballotin and the surrounding communities. And not like we're the only church. That's not what I'm saying. But we can have an impact, and it can get greater and greater as there's more and more of us doing the work of the ministry. The body of Christ is called to do the work of the ministry. That's us. Let's close in prayer. Again, Lord, I I thank you that you give us the privilege of being part of your advancing the kingdom. God, that as your children, we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in each one of us to lead and guide us, direct us, to encourage us, to comfort us when that's what we need. God, that we are never alone. You won't forsake us. You're always there with us. God, I pray that you would give us a spirit of availability that would be open and sensitive to your Holy Spirit. God, that we would be willing to do and go and say whatever it is you would have us to do and go and say. God, that we would walk in love, the love of Christ. God, that we would love the unlovable. That we would be known as a people who love everybody. God, that our, our, our methods may change techniques may change,
but your message would be one that would go forth always with truth and love. I pray now, Lord, as we go our separate ways today, you watch over us, keep us safe, protect us. Father, I pray you provide those divine opportunities to share the good news of the gospel and you give us the grace to respond in obedience. Lord, that we would truly continue to be salt and light, that light in a dark world. And we ask this, Lord, that you would receive all the glory and the honor in your Son's name. Amen.